Okay, good. This is so much fun. I love doing podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? I listen to a fair amount of podcasts, yeah. Yeah, do you have a favorite right now? Right now, I've been listening to Revolutions. Oh, yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that one's really good. It's kind of really traditional history. It is. Um, this happened, then that happened, and a right. bunch of men who are running things, basically. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today, we are joined by Dr. Joan Newberger. Dr. Newberger is a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, who has written extensively on the politics of the arts in modern Russia. Her most recent book is This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in Stalin's Russia, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Revolutions are carried out by people who feel exploited, who feel or are exploited, who um, feel that they have no power, and in asserting their power, Eisenstein argues that they inevitably become as bad as the people that they overthrew. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Newberger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start with This Thing of Darkness, which is a fantastic book, um, and to ask, what is it that drew you to Yvonne the Terrible films? Um, because this is not the first time that you've thought about Eisenstein's unfinished masterpiece. What is it that makes you want to explore it? Is it just because it's a great movie and everyone should see it? Is it the cinematography? Is there something else? Well, I think that it is just an absolutely fascinating work of art. It's the history, the cinematography, uh, Eisenstein's writing about it, and also the fact that it was, um, it has been really misunderstood. So for a long time after it was released, especially outside the Soviet Union, but really inside as well, it was seen as being a film that fully justified Stalin's reign and Stalin's violence. Um, and Eisenstein was seen by many people as being someone who just caved into Stalin because he had to, because that's what everyone had to do in that time. For me, watching the film, even just for the first time, that seemed like a really weird interpretation. And then when I began to dig into it and looked into Eisenstein's writings about the film in his diaries and in his notebooks and in um, theoretical pieces that weren't published until much, much later, it became really clear that this is a, just an incredibly complex film. And that he had a very complex way of getting uh, a message across that was critical of Stalinism. I noticed reading the book how often archival sources come up in here. And as a historian, that's your primary vehicle of work. But when you're talking about a film, that's not always the way people approach it. So would you speak a little more to these archives and your work in them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, most people who do film uh, history or film studies um, are really excellent at interpreting the visual images, the moving images. And that's also a part of this book. Um, but I was really interested in trying to figure out the historical context in which the film was made and um, what Eisenstein was trying to do. And actually, when I started, I, I didn't know anything about Eisenstein, really. Um, I loved the movie. I had a little funding and I went, thought, well, I'll just go to Moscow and see if there's anything in Eisenstein's archive. And I mean, anyone who knows anything about Eisenstein would start laughing now and realize how ignorant and naive I was, because in fact, Eisenstein was a compulsive writer. He just wrote an enormous amount. And there were over 100 notebooks in his archive about this from this period, about the film and about his thoughts about everything he read in preparation for the film. And then his ideas as he developed ideas about making the f film, he jotted things down. Um, so we have this incredibly rich store to do something that film studies doesn't al always do, doesn't often do actually, which is really give a historical accounting of, of the making of the film, but then also of Einstein's thinking, of the director's thinking as he was making it. So those are two good points, the making and the thinking. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the making, because this movie took quite a long time how did it end up happening? Why did, we've talked about how you were drawn to Yvonne. How was Eisenstein drawn to Yvonne? And how did this project sort of come to him? So Eisenstein wasn't really drawn to Yvonne. It was given to him. He hadn't made a film in a few years and he pitched another film. And at the beginning of 1941, he was told that Stalin wanted him to make a film about Ivan the Terrible. 
Uh, and it wasn't the first project on Ivan the Terrible. There was a kind of attempt on Stalin's part to revive um, Russian historical rulers to give the current regime a kind of historical pedigree. So Eisenstein was given the project, but he was immediately fascinated by it. And he realized almost immediately that he could um, use this subject to work on a lot of the things that he'd been thinking about, about history, about politics, about power, um, about individual uh, evolution, individual development, um, individual psychology, uh, and then also cinema itself, about film. Because he has, and it's interesting to me that he has to work on these ideas, um, which I'd love to get into more later. But when he's working on these ideas means he can't just work on them. So there's there's this double layer in the film of what it looks like and what it's supposed to be and what it's advertised as versus what Eisenstein's intent is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition in Russian culture of um, writers and artists conveying political messages with um, what they called a Sapian language, uh, a kind of, you know, dual layered um, uh, hidden messages underneath a, a, a placid surface. Um, so Eisenstein was working in that tradition, but the thing, one of the things about Ivan the Terrible that makes it so interesting is that um, doing that under Stalin was um, put your life in, in danger. Right. The stakes were really high. Uh, and, um, and, and also he doesn't just sort of criticize Stalinism. He really takes on the whole notion of, uh, centralized or dictatorial power itself and to try and understand and try and convey, um, a story about why some rulers become tyrants, why some rulers resort to violence or actually why rulers resort to violence over and over and over again. Uh, and um, he he was miraculously really able to make a film that um, was able to do that w while he still had a surface that was somewhat acceptable, at least in part one. So this right. was this was supposed to be a three part film um, or a two part film. There were different there were different plans at different points in the process. And part one is famously won a Stalin Prize, and part two famously was immediately banned. So, um, uh, so it's, it's, so the other thing that makes it really fascinating is that it has this really complicated reception history. People who saw it interpreted it, um, widely differently and Stalin saw it, uh, uh, loved part one or accepted part one and really hated part two. Right. And you get into this in the book, there is a bit of a different reaction among officials to part one versus some private letters and correspondence about the movie? Part one famously won the Stalin Prize. And for that reason, a lot of later reviewers really thought, that's one of the reasons why later observers thought that uh, it was a pro-Stalin film. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that it almost didn't win the prize. In fact, um, it, it had to go through a process of several committees which would nominate um, works of art to higher committees and then ultimately go to the Ministry of Culture and ultimately go to Stalin. And at all those places along the way, um, people were afraid or reluctant to nominate it, support it, say anything positive about it. And this is part one, which ultimately won the prize. Uh, ultimately, it had to be Stalin who made the final decision. Uh, so at least he thought that part one was acceptable as a as a version uh, or an introductory version to uh, his own um, acquisition of power and uses of power. Because this was such a pet project of Stalin's to get these movies made, that must have been, you know what, this is the one we've got. We've had all these other ones. They didn't really scratch that itch I need. Why don't we send this through? And then part two comes along and it's very different in tone from the first one and how did the reaction turn out there? The thing that I discovered looking through Eisenstein's writing is that he saw part one and part two and ultimately part three as all being part of one, uh, one story. Yvonne, his Yvonne goes through a process of development from childhood all the way up through um, the end of his career. 
that Eisenstein saw as, as consistent. And in fact, he was afraid that not that part two would be too dangerous or too negative a portrait of, um, I was going to say Stalin, of Ivan, um, which of course everyone expected to be a, um, an analogy for Stalin. But he was afraid that part one would seem too pale, as he put it. So, um, so he was delighted that it won the Stalin Prize. He knew that it was turned down at first, and that because he has a notation about that in his diary. Um, but he was really del- delighted to win the prize um, uh, in in the end for part one, and he fully expected part two to have the same effect, um, but it didn't. So. Uh, the things that Stalin hated about part two were that by the time Ivan gets to the point that he's beginning to murder people in order to stay in power and in order to pursue the great Russian state, founding the great Russian state, that was his mission throughout. Um, by the time Ivan gets there and he starts killing people, he always has a, a, a moment of doubt. And he always has a moment where he asks either the audience or God or someone for judgment. Am I doing the right thing? Uh, and Stalin just hated that. Um, everyone, for a long time, people thought that part two was um, uh, too negative a portrait of Ivan for Stalin. But in fact, uh, it turns out, as a couple of historians recognize, that that wasn't it at all. It was that um, Ivan wasn't terrible enough for Stalin. And later Stalin said it, it was okay with him that Ivan is shown murdering people because that was necessary, but he needed, it needed to, the film needed to explain why he did those things. And for, uh, as far as Stalin was concerned, uh, part two did not do that. I also argue in my book uh, that I believe that there's another reason why Stalin was unhappy with part two. And that's the um, really ubiquitous homoeroticism of part two. It starts off with a homoerotic scene between Prince Kribsky, who was a traitor to uh, Russia, to Ivan the Terrible. He goes over to the Polish King Sigismund, and that scene is openly homoerotic. It's really clear to anyone watching it today, although maybe it wasn't quite so clear in the 40s. It was, in my opinion, definitely clear to Stalin and his, um, uh, and his inner circle. The way that Sigismund's sitting on the throne and the way that Kerbsky presents his sword and the expressions they all have in the scene seems very... I get that. Yeah. Good. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I hope everyone goes and watches it now. It is a fantastic movie. I had seen other um, Eisenstein movies before, but I'd never seen this one. Um, And I watched it in preparation for this interview, and it's it's phenomenal. Um, I understand why... Stalin had such an adverse reaction to it, but I also get how this was really Eisenstein's attempt to bring all of his thoughts about history and art together, but only having had it kind of explained to me. So for people who might not get that, what, what he has this interesting view of history and how it affects people, not entirely unique, but how does that, how does that manifest in Ivan? Uh, History was really important to him. All of his films are historical in some sense. But in addition to that, he really was interested in um, historical developments generally. The history of the arts, he sees cinema as a sort of pinnacle of the history of the arts. Uh, And a few years later, he actually wrote a kind of notes for a history of of cinema. Um, But he was really interested in something that was pretty common at this time, actually. That is the way individuals evolve the same way cultures evolve. And he thought that um, it was in order to understand the root, the sort of the roots of tyranny and its recurrence in history. He thought it was really important to understand why individuals evolve uh, to become tyrants, but also what it is about historical developments generally that um, continually produce violent uh, regimes. And um, he had he had a theory that derived from his. Um, basic Marxist belief beliefs uh, that um, things, people and, and cultures evolve dialectically. Uh, and in, in Marxist terms, that means that there would, there would be a kind of uh, contradiction between things, um, between forces in history or within individuals. I mean, if you think about it, we're all bundles of contradictions, right? 
and cultures are always have um, uh, contradictory trends going on in, in any given time. Um, and and uh, those contradictions intensify to the point where they explode in some transcendent moment or some revolution or some major transition. And then they begin processes of dividing up again and becoming uh, creating new tensions. But there's a twist here, literally a twist, in that um, he thought that for every time that societies or individuals move forward in a way that um, they return to their roots. So we have a constant drive to revisit our most primal experiences as individuals and our most primal, and in this case, also violent experiences as cultures. So I realize this is going into a little bit of... Um, uh, of the weeds of theory. That's great. Um, but he he believed that everything sort of um, moves in a in a spiral form. So think about a spiral staircase, right? Every time you go up the staircase, you actually circle around to a point that's where you started. Uh, and um, he, and Ivan the Terrible has this story embedded in it. So every time that Ivan takes a step forward perfect example is when he murders someone for the first time or orders a political murder political for motive. the first time, but also by motivated, ones. not only and he by remembers people. that when he was a child, his um, mother was murdered by the boyars, by the aristocracy. So when he orders his first murder of one of the, his opponents, one of these boyars, he's, he both sees it as a, a political necessity, but he's also motivated by these incredibly strong feelings of desire for revenge. Uh, and for Eisenstein, this was a, a theory of history, right? That individuals, even especially important political figures, are as much motivated by contemporary politics as they are by some deep primal needs. Um, and in this case, for, for revenge. I could talk about this probably at great length, but that really maps on to a kind of revolutionary history as well. Revolutions are carried out by people who feel exploited, who feel or are exploited, who um, feel that they have no power. And in asserting their power, they overthrow forces that had been exploiting them. Um, but Eisenstein argues that they become, that they inevitably, because these desires for revenge never really leave us, he argues that um, revolutionaries become uh, as bad as the people that they overthrew. And he had, if this was his interpretation of the Russian Revolution, in the sense that it was a utopian, uh, heroic movement for egalitarianism, but it ended up being uh, it it ended up being something where the initial generation of revolutionaries ended up um, as bad as the people that they overthrew in the ways that they then exploited and suppressed the people. That seems like a very dangerous position to take when making a film. How did he get away with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the film was was commissioned in January 1941, and uh, he began writing the script immediately. Um, but then in June 1941, the Soviet Union was invaded by the Nazis. And the Moscow and Leningrad film studios were all evacuated to Almaty, now Almaty in Kazakhstan. And they were far, far away from Moscow and far, far away from power. Uh, and this gave Eisenstein a kind of freedom that he hadn't really had uh, since 1931 when he was in Mexico making a film. And, and he did some of the same, same things he did in Mexico, which actually got him in a lot of trouble there. That's the book I'm writing now. <laughs> um, so I hope we'll do a podcast on this in a little while. Great. But um, he shot, he, sh he, he did what he wanted to do. He made the film that he wanted to make and he made it the way he wanted to, which was that he took his time. And he, continued, he shot many, many versions of every single moment, every single scene, uh, in the hopes that he would have the time to edit, that he could get each shot perfectly, and then that he would edit all of those scenes. He was told, after writing the script, he was told that certain scenes would um, not be allowed. Um, he shot some of those scenes anyway. Some of them were, in fact, removed from the final product, but some of them were left in there. So the, the conclusion that I draw, draw is that Eisenstein had a very good sense of how to play the political game, the cultural politics of the Soviet Union. And he understood that 
he would have to bury the kinds of messages that he wanted to say uh, that he wanted to convey in the film. But he um, uh, he understood that he could gamble at times, that he could bend at times, that he could give up things at times, um, but that he um, could could gamble on putting the things in the film that he wanted to. So on the same vein of things he wasn't allowed to do, but still did anyway, um, to an extent, we never got part three, but there are some scenes and versions of the script. Do we, can we, or do you have any idea what part three was going to look like, where he was taking it? Maybe were some of, because parts one and two raise a lot of questions with very few answers. Was there any intent to answer those? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, um, a lot of people told him not to not to finish part two without part three um, because they thought that part two just looked too sinister without what happens in part three, which is that Ivan and the Russian army make it to the um, uh, he gets rid of all of his political enemies. And then he also conquers uh, the foreign enemies and he reaches the Baltic Sea, which was one of the goals that were sort of set up in the beginning. He, he founds the great Russian state and then the great Russian state is victorious both domestically and, um, and externally. Uh, so, um, a lot of his friends said, you know, you've really got to include part three here in, in one film and not break it up into two different films. But he didn't, he didn't want to do that. And, uh, he thought that in fact, part three was going to be even more devastating. We, we do have the full script, the full sort of literary script for part three. So we know where he was going to go with it. And it has a devastating scene of the conquest uh, by the by the Muscovite state of Novgorod, um, which was, in fact, a, a devastating annihilation of the entire city. Um, and he says at one point, not there were no dogs or birds or anything left uh, after the after the um, battle. And if you think about it, this was all going on during World War II, um, which was unthinkably devastating in, in the rest of the world, but especially in the Soviet Union, which lost more people in towns and buildings than anywhere else in the world, um, which they were well aware of when Eisenstein was filming this in 1944, 1945. So um, he was pretty sure that part three was going to be even more devastating uh, and that um, he could gamble on, on releasing part two separately. Part three, though, ends very ambivalently, um, and uh, it's, it's subject to interpretation. So Yvonne gets to the sea, and the, even the, he says even the, even the waves bow down at his feet, and Eisenstein has some drawings of the, of the ocean kind of coming and, and paying homage to Yvonne. Um, but then he also has drawings of Yvonne walking dejectedly along the beach um, alone, uh, all alone. And um, in fact, the the people still support Yvonne. We have drawings of them and sort of descriptions of them standing on the on the the dunes. Um, but in fact, almost the entire country has been devastated, um, and the the people's support for Yvonne is is itself ambivalent. Um, so, my interpretation of this is that um, it's another one of those sort of Aesopian messages. Uh, that, um, yes, Yvonne is victorious, but at what cost? What was the price? The price was devastating the country. Um, and that, you know, is typical sort of narcissistic, uh, tyrannical view of victory. Right. Which, thinking about the released versions, sort of parallels the beginning coronation scene where you have Ivan alone in the middle of the room professing the greatness of the new Russian state, or the reborn, I guess, great Russian state he's making, um, and no one around him is on board with that. Mm -hmm. The only mm -hmm. time in the beginning of the movie you have any kind of support for him comes from his wedding scene when the commoners come in and he's able to relate to them and turn them over to his side. So it's this very... These these vague um, he has these high analytical things on his side, but the real things around him and his relationships to other people don't turn out 
positively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his message is an abstract one, right? The great Russian state. He's going to found the great Russian state. But what does that mean in the end uh, if no one supports him? And that was also the dilemma that the Bolsheviks faced. Um, they won the civil war, um, but immediately there, were, there was a constant opposition. And uh, historians um, pretty much agree these days that a strong strain in the Stalinist period was paranoia about holding on to power uh, as a route for some of the violence against, um, against the party and, and against other people and so on. Um, so that's another thing that Eisenstein plays with in, in this film. And another way that he very subtly, I think, is able to criticize not just Stalin, but the whole Stalinist project by raising a question about um, abstract goals and practical, real um, consequences. So a bit of a pivot, but still on <laughs> abstract. Eisenstein has this theory of history that we've touched on, but he also has a very interesting theory of art. Um, and you have this fantastic quote in this thing of darkness where you say that he, Eisenstein, wanted to stir something more primal in us. He wanted to stir everything primal in us, our deepest fears and highest mental abilities, because that's what his subject and his medium and the world he lived in demanded. I, I was just really struck by that. And I can see how the world he lived in demanded that. But the, how did he see art as a vehicle of striking everything primal in us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. From about the late 20s through this period, Eisenstein was reading, um, as were many intellectuals and artists during this period, were, were reading uh, ethnography about um, so-called primitive peoples. Uh, and he came to believe that there was something in the arts of prehistoric peoples, um, pre-literate peoples, things like cave paintings that that were more directly in touch with our feelings uh, and not just our emotions, but our, our physical feelings, our senses. Uh, and he wanted, he believed that cinema could appeal directly to, um, to those instincts, to those instinctive responses to the things we see around us. This was a, a kind of sort of derogatory view of non-modern, non-European peoples. That's where a lot of the ethnography comes from. Um, and Eisenstein sort of shares, it's actually what I'm working on now, but he, he sort of shares those ideas uh, about um, the people of um, Africa and Asia and the Amazon rainforest and so on that he was reading about in the current day, right? But that was what was really important to him was that he believed that those feelings weren't just erased in civilization. He didn't believe that European civilization was somehow superior to that, just the opposite. He believed that, remember that part where I was saying that we always go back to our primal feelings? Right. He believed that all of us always have access to and a great desire for this kind of instinctive, um, uh, these instinctive feelings and, and responses to the things around us. And the 19th century, really, the whole Enlightenment was um, a period when people valorized ideas and reason. And he was one of the people in the, in the early 20th century who was really working against that, um, against that way of imagining human, uh, human nature. And he believed that just as important were our feelings and our bodily experiences. And so his, uh, I realize that's kind of a long way away from the question you asked, but it's not actually. So I'm getting back to that now. He thought that cinema could trigger these kinds of feelings and experiences in viewers. And he, again, he saw this as a dialectic. So he believed that um, all great art uh, appealed to our ideas, but also appealed to our sensory feelings and our, our emotions. And that um, the way to organize any work of art, any great work of art already did this. And this is partly why I was interested in the history of the arts and wrote so much about them because he was looking for examples that did that, that really appealed to both at the same time. Uh, and he thought that cinema could do this better than anything else. So we become, you know, the feeling of watching a film and being completely immersed in it, where your responses are really kind of instinctive uh, and you're not really, you know, really unconscious, subconscious. You're not really aware of what you're responding to later when you go back and start talking with your friends about it. Um, you may have some ideas as you're going along. He, he believed that 
uh, a filmmaker needed to organize the film in or a film in order to trigger both those um, advanced uh, intellectual ideas, but also really primal feelings at the same time, and then to bring those together. So he thinks he did that in Ivan the Terrible. And the real question for me is whether he actually did. Because uh, people's responses to the film suggest that he failed, actually. A lot of people responded by saying that this film is just too cerebral. It's really hard to figure out what's going on. It uses music in a way that's not immersive. In fact, that is intended to challenge you and to challenge your, to really trigger these, um, these, these uh, contradictory ideas, right? The, the music is often sort of at odds or a counterpoint to things that are going on in the film um, because he thought that that would activate this dialectic in, in viewers. But for a lot of people, it was just really interesting and, um, but it didn't create that kind of immersive experience that, you know, a popular film does sort of easily, right. By using music to kind of trigger conventional feelings. Right. So for me, that makes it really interesting uh, to think about what he thought he was trying to do uh, and what actually viewers respond uh, to. And was that kind of the universal reaction? Because this has this film has a weird timeline because it's released. Part one is released in 1944. Part two is screened to Stalin and cultural officials a year later, two years later, but not given a full release until 1958. Were releases in 58, were reactions in 1958 different than they were among people who were supposed to check if it was okay beforehand? Yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting topic. Um, uh, when people finally saw part two, they'd only seen part one. And part one had won the Stalin Prize. So, uh, you know, a lot of people just assumed it was propagandistic. Um, when they saw part two and they saw how different it was, um, they thought, many people thought that it was, that Eisenstein had kind of um, done the official thing in part one and then just went ahead and made this um, critical thing in part two. But as I said earlier, he really saw them as being a, a, a consistent trajectory for him. But I think, I think part of the reason why, I mean, one of the things that Ivan the Terrible is a great example of is how we see what we are sort of uh, expecting to see. Um, so people expected part one to be propaganda. People then saw part two and um, began to, you know, saw it as being very different and, um, and then sort of interpreted it in that, interpreted it in, in a different way. And I think in this case, what happened is that politics continually gets in the way of all the other things that Eisenstein's trying to do in the film. Politics was important from the very beginning. Everyone expected it to be a movie about Stalin. Um, and really throughout, I mean, everyone still expects it to be a movie about Stalin. So that's kind of the first question that people ask when they go or when they're just thinking about it and looking at it, watching it. And so some of the more um, obscure effects that he was trying to um, create, I think kind of get lost. Uh, and I think one of my goals is that people will now read my book and then um, uh, go to the film with this sort of expectation. Well, how does he try to make me feel? I think that the emotional response, the, the emotional effects that he was trying to create are kind of hidden. Um, on the other hand, I really respond emotionally to this film. And uh, I find Cherkasov as Ivan the Terrible just an incredibly moving presence, not just someone who's appealing to my ideas, but someone whose own struggles are really moving. And another thing that people don't often realize is that the scenes of Ivan's childhood were supposed to be at the beginning of the film. And those are some of the most um, emotionally effective scenes that Eisenstein makes. So imagine this film, if it started off with a little boy um, who sees his mother murdered and is then terrified by that and responds to that experience with himself with violence in the next scene when he's still a small boy, right? Um, imagine if that were the first scene. I think we're cued to respond to the film emotionally by those scenes in a way we're not by the coronation, which actually opens part one. Those are some reasons why I think 
that a lot of the emotional effects that he's trying to create are not appreciated by a lot of people who see the film. So we'll never get a director's cut of Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> but if that were to happen, you think putting those scenes at the beginning, I mean, it would fit the spiral idea circling back sure. yeah. because you can see how Yvonne circles back to that. And then the audience will also circle back to that first scene as they mm -hmm. see those events unfold before mm -hmm. them. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, it, films are, are, um, uh, are an art form that makes it really clear that any, any work of art could continue to be worked on. Uh, and we have what we have. And that's really true of all films, but Eisenstein's films, because they all had such a interrupted histories, um, seem to really bring that whole idea to the fore. But part two actually is the director's cut. So part one went through the censorship. There were scenes that were cut. He was forced to change the titles that um, start the film and sort of cue people's expectations for a much more sort of Stalinist film than the one that he was intending. Um, and we lose, we lose the, the prologue, the scenes of Yvonne's childhood. Um, but part two went through the censorship and he never worked on it again. He preserved it as it was. And he was finally given permission to go back and revise it. He was already pretty sick this, by this time. He'd already had one, he'd already survived one heart attack. Um, and we, we don't know for sure, but he showed it to a few friends and a few students after he'd gotten permission and um, their response was sort of terrified. You know, <laughs> what are you doing here? They're going to kill you for this. Um, and I think that he decided to just leave it as is because this was this was the film that he wanted to make. So we actually have the film he made um, without any any additional cuts. So we talked a lot about Yvonne now. Um, I, pivoting away from that to your work in public history, and I guess maybe to start, what was it that brought you to history and specifically Russian film and cultural art as, as politics? Ah, uh, what brought me to Russian history? Um, that goes back way beyond Eisenstein, actually, in my, in my primal history. Um, I read a lot of Russian novels in high school. Uh, and loved them. And then I went off to college expecting to be an English major. Um, but I didn't like, I didn't want to take the prerequisites. So I took a Russian course instead and I just fell in love with it. Um, and I, and then I started the language and I fell in love with the language. So I became a Russian major. And then I was lucky enough in my senior year to get to go to Leningrad, still Leningrad then, um, my senior year first semester. And I was just blown away by the whole experience and the, the big question for me was how to get back to the Soviet Union. Uh, and in those days, there were two ways. You could go um, be a nanny at the embassy. Well, there were three ways, actually. You could get a gig working as a translator. Those were hard to get. Um, or you could go on the graduate student exchange. Um, so I went to grad school. And that was the main reason why I went. Then I had to decide whether I wanted to go in history or literature because I'd been a, a literature major. Um, but I decided that the, the questions that really motivated me were historical ones. I mean, I just fell in love with the place. I made incredible friends. I met amazing people, talented, interesting people. And it was this horrible system. Um, and I, and I, I was just really motivated by the question, uh, by trying to understand that what seemed to me to be a real dichotomy. Um, but I should also say that I grew up in a, in a, a privileged middle-class household in suburban New York um, that I thought at the time was really the sort of norm for the United States. And um, like so many of my peers have come to realize um, how badly so many people, uh, impoverished people, people of color were living at that time in ways that were, was not that different from the ways that a lot of people lived in the Soviet Union. But it took some time for me to sort of really reevaluate my views of the Soviet Union at that time. And I really wanted to understand a question we could now be asking about the United States, which is, you know, how can such a fantastic people live in a system that actually, you know, exploits and oppresses so many people? But that's a historical question. And that's what led me to history. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> I guess my question, is it public history, in your opinion, of the best vehicle for doing that? I actually came to public history quite a bit later. I was here at UT um, for, well, for 20 years before I started doing public history. 
I think a lot of historians really want their work to be accessible to the public. But until the internet made that easy to do, I don't think that people had that many vehicles or ideas about, creative ideas about how to do that. We all gave lectures in, you know, libraries or to retired people, things like that. But the internet all of a sudden created all sorts of opportunities. And the head of our department at the time uh, wanted to create some kind of blog for our alumni. Um, actually, our alumni asked for it. And um, I volunteered to do that because I was already a great fan of um, the internet and really, really curious about things. I was already a, this was already 10 years ago. I was, uh, I already was a, on Facebook all the time and things like that. Not all my colleagues are or were. So I thought this would be a lot of fun. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I didn't know the term public history. Uh, I didn't know anything about digital history. And I just kind of dove in and um, started. So I say that because um, I think that with, it was really a lot of trial and error. And um, I want to encourage people to understand that really anyone can be a public historian if they're willing to give it a try. Right. So out of that, we got not even passed right. and 15 minute history. And as, as a trial and error process, are there things along the way you've found that work really well to convey historical topics and ideas to a general audience and things that maybe you would expect to work but didn't quite pan out that way? Well, let me say I started with um, a couple uh, ideas that were important to me. When we were, we spent a summer and a semester setting up Not Even Past, trying to decide what we would what we would put on it. I mean, we didn't even have a, a name at that time. And we did a bunch of focus groups with some middle school and high school teachers and with some of our alumni and some other sort of general readers, people we knew liked history. And one of the things that everyone said is that they thought if, if we tied history to current events, that that would be really powerful. And I decided I didn't want to do that because, first of all, there were other websites that did that. Um, and I wanted readers to appreciate history for its own sake. I really believe that history is important, even when it doesn't uh, automatically tell us something about the present uh, and that people should be interested in the history of peoples who are different from them. And that this is really and that history is a great way to learn more about people who are different from who you are. So those were my two kind of guiding principles that I wanted to get beyond American history I wanted people to, let's say, maybe click on a story about American history, but find ways to encourage them to look at something else. And that influenced the design of the page. But I also wanted to stay away from current events, or at least not make that a major focus. Things that worked and didn't work. We had numerous things that didn't work. <laughs> you know, numerous ideas that we tried that, uh, that we didn't quite succeed in doing, but in the, for the most part, there were things that we just didn't have time for. Um, so I should probably say what Not Even Past does. Not Even Past is a, is a, it's kind of like a history magazine online. We have book recommendations. Uh, we have feature stories every month on books by the history faculty at UT Austin or other members of the faculty are doing something historical. Um, and, uh, we have, film reviews. We ha and then we have a blog, which is about anything. All of Not Even Past is written by the faculty and the grad students at UT Austin. We sometimes have visitors. We sometimes have uh, people from other universities write for us. But um, at least initially it was, uh, the idea was to promote and show off the incredible talents at UT Austin. Um, now we added uh, a series on digital history and we we added a series on public history. So we have students and faculty, uh, faculty writing articles about what it means to do public history um, and also then reviewing digital history websites other than ours um, to show people what a range of um, historical sites are out there. We've had other things that we've sort of moved away from, but um, those, are the, those are the main things we're doing right now. And do you see a general, who's reading not even past, I guess. Is yeah, there we a did a public? we did a survey a few years ago, uh, and we got a high number of responses. I don't I don't quite remember the percentage now, but we got a pretty high number of responses. We have a lot of people in Texas reading, not even past, but we also have readers from 
something like 100, 100 countries because Google gives us analyt analytics that lets right. us see when people are, are clicking in. We have a very broad array of readers. So a lot of grad students. And then after that, the kind of general reader that you would expect, lawyers, doctors, journalists, um, professionals of various kinds, but also um, firefighters, post office workers, librarians, and a broad range of people from all over the place. Because there is a general interest in seeing stories from the past, even if they don't, people don't recognize that it's history, but that's what draws people to Yvonne the Terrible and other historical <laughs> movies. Right, and right. so there is kind of a market for it. Um, yeah, there's a huge market for public history, actually. And um, there are a lot of ways that we could probably get more readers. Right now we get somewhere between 40 and 50,000 hits a month, uh, which we think is pretty good. We could definitely raise that number if we did things, if we did more current events, if we did more contests, um, things like that, if, more games sort of like that, if we lowered the level of writing. So journalism, journalists aim for an eighth grade writing level. Um, and I also... My, one of my other sort of founding ideas was that all our articles should be should have the professional standards that professional historians use. Um, they should be written without jargon and in easy to understand sentences. Um, but every article should have an argument and every article should be supported by uh, uh, evidence uh, in the same way that professional historians write. So. Um, so, yeah, so there's a huge um, audience for history of lower standards, but I think that a lower number of readers and a higher standard gives people this. This is a niche that we that we fill. Do you see a role for public history that I know you try to steer away from current events, but so much of what people think about the world is inspired by what they think the past was mm -hmm. and it's conveyed to them in various media where it's not always given the standard that public historians and not even past have is there a way to bridge that to try to make more people aware than people other than people who approach the subject make the subject approach them i wish i had a simple answer to that I think that we're up against a lot of misinformation uh, that's very powerfully conveyed. We just have to look at the media, the popular media, TV. Uh, so there's no simple answer to that. That is, I mean, that is really the question that um, that I've struggled with, especially since the 2016 election, how to reach people who are not, who don't already agree with us is I think the most important question for public humanities. And I don't think that we're doing that great a job at this yet. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who are working on it, though, including the National Endowment for the Humanities, for example. When we have addressed current events, it's almost always been as a correction. So when we see something really egregious in the, in the media about contemporary, whatever, contemporary events, uh, we often have a, a, a blog that'll sort of set the record straight. Uh, and we're not the only ones doing that, but um, it's not clear how we break down the, the sort of silos that have been erected by, um, you know, the politicized um, popular TV news media and by Facebook and, and other things like that. Uh, it's not really clear to me how we break that down. So I don't have a good answer to that. I wish I had a better answer. It is something that I worry about a lot uh, and that um, I think I'm going to take a little, I'm going to take a little break from this because I have a sabbatical next year. But um, when I come back, that's sort of the, Thing I'd like to work on, think about, sort of brainstorming about how to do that. So I think we're probably going to be wrapping up here soon, but mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, um, you've mentioned that you're working on Eisenstein still, but you're shifting towards a project he did in Mexico, mm -hmm. which I don't know anything about. What's, what's all that? Well, in 1929, Eisenstein and his cameraman, Edward Tisset, and, and his assistant director and good friend, uh, Grigory Alexandrov, 
went uh, on a long trip abroad, ostensibly to uh, research new sound technology, uh, also to try and make some films in the West that might bring some revenue to the struggling Soviet film industry, uh, and also because they were dying to you know, travel around the world. Uh, they went to Europe, they went to the U.S. I had a contract to make three films in Hollywood, all of which never got off the ground. And then he got funding to go to Mexico, where he'd always wanted to go um, to make a film there. He ended up getting funding for, they had no idea how much money they needed, but he, uh, to make a film. And they were all completely naive and um, inexperienced in that area. And he ended up staying in Mexico from December 1930 to March 1932, uh, shot 50 hours worth of footage, but went way over budget and really angered the people who were funding him. And uh, they never gave the, f- the footage back to Eisenstein. Um, so a half a dozen other people made films with this footage that he, that he um, shot, but he never got to make a film about it. it was, that was really traumatic for him. But his whole experience in Mexico was an incredibly important transitional experience for him. I'm really interested in the things that he was writing in the 1940s about immersion in nature, which he kind of discovered and experienced for himself in Mexico. He was far away from the European urban milieu in which he'd been brought up and in which, which he really oriented himself around. Um, and uh, Mexico, this is a long answer, right? Mexico was... Um, a revolutionary country. Mexico City was a place where revolutionaries from all over the world, the left from all over the world were um, gathering in the early 1930s. I think it's more exciting than the avant-garde Paris that everyone looks to. Um, And it was also a completely different landscape. In the 40s, when he begins thinking about this and writing about it again, he starts writing about immersion in nature as being uh, a model for our immersion in cinema, I was talking about earlier, um, but also the immersion of the individual and the collective. So I'm interested in these new ideas about cinema, uh, how it was rooted in ideas about nature, which are similar to the way people write about nature today, right? Not as controlling nature or making it serve our needs, but immersing ourselves in it. And then also this idea of the collective. So his sort of socialist ideas, which were very hard to write about under Stalin because they were different from Stalinist ideas. Uh, also come out in some of this writing. Um, so I'm going back and looking at the the footage for the film from Mexico to see how some of those ideas played out and then looking at his writing later. Great. Well, we look forward to reading about it. <laughs> Thank you. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.